0: Hello friends, Adrienne and Matika here. Welcome back to our third and last chapter of our series on the movement against the 30 meter telescope on Mauna Kea. If you haven't listened to the first two episodes yet, we encourage you to maybe press pause for now and listen to those first, just so you're up to speed. It's been just about a year since we visited the beautiful summit of Mauna Kea. And in that year,
1: a lot has happened. TMT has continued fundraising for the project, even though they halted construction. There's been a national election. Several Native women have been reelected. Deb Holland is the official nominee for the Secretary of the Interior, the first Native person to hold that position, which is massive because federal funding and most Native relations are allocated through the Department of the Interior. But as far as we can tell from the TMT website, they seem to be forging ahead with their destructive plans.
0: At the end of March 2020, so two or so months after our visit, the pandemic was at a point that the camp on the Mauna needed to be closed down for everyone's safety. In order to bring us to the present and hear what's happening with the movement since then... We got back in contact with
2: Jamaica Heoli and
0: Auntie Noinoi.
2: Aloha everyone, this is Noi Noi Wong-Wilson.
0: We caught up with them on January 7th, which was the day after the violent insurrection at the Capitol, so we all had settler politics majorly on our minds. In our conversation, they reflect on the lessons from the time on the Mauna and let us know where things stand with the TMT today. One thing Jamaica and Auntie Noe want to make clear is that even though the camp at Puhuluhulu has been closed to most Kiai protectors, the protection of the Mauna has not stopped, and the movement has not stopped, and they're ready to take action if necessary. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
3: So when we had spoken with you, we were sort of still in that uh, holding pattern. Uh, We were still present on the Mauna, but a lot of people had started to return home. They have jobs. School was starting. The camp, while we did not dismantle immediately, um, our presence wasn't required to be in full volume on the Mauna. So we were still watchful uh, and made sure that the TMT project was not moving forward and, and things just started to continue in a very peaceful manner. And then soon after, I started hearing on the news about this uh, virus that was um, starting to rear its ugly head and we were ever vigil, you know, just watching to see what was happening and then found out that um, that in fact, our governor, I, I don't know remember the exact date, but it was sometime in March when he ordered that that people start to quarantine. We urged people who did not have to be on the Mauna to return home. So we sort of gradually moved in that direction until it became pretty apparent that um, this pandemic was getting worse across the nation. And I remember one day in particular being up there with a fairly small group of people. We still had our tents. I think by this time, by the end of March, New York City was raging with the pandemic, right? People were getting ill, they were dying. And there was um, a lot of confusion nationally about what what was happening and how to prepare for this. And people showed up on the mana to come visit us, but they were there from New York City and they were visiting us because they were running away from this pandemic in their hometown and then they were coming straight to the mountain to visit us and it, it frightened me, it really did. And I said, oh my gosh, you know, we cannot, we cannot do this. I know that even if we had say a dozen or two dozen people in camp, We tried to maintain our three times a day ritual, three times a day protocol, because it was such a foundational piece of what we were doing. And every time we did our protocol, and especially the noon protocol, we might end up with 100 people. People would come up to the Mauna just to participate in protocol. And while it wasn't because I didn't want them to participate in protocol, I was just trying to figure out, and not just me but others, you know, concerned about this, how we were going to protect ourselves and our elders from being exposed when we were actually being the attraction.
2: This movement has always been focused and led by by the intention to protect our Mauna and protect our Aina. But by virtue of that, it's also always about protecting each other. And so in the summer of 2019, we needed to be on a front line to protect the Mauna from construction vehicles and and this project. And in the summer of 2020, we needed to be in our homes to protect each other from invasive visitors and and an estate that would not protect our health over the financial opportunities of opening tourism. So what I love about our movements is the way that although it's challenging, we continue to shift based on the needs of our people.
0: I would love to hear a little bit more from you about the ways that you see that connection between needing to protect Hawaii from these visitors who are seeing it as an escape from their own pandemic and the movement. Um, And you made that connection really beautifully just now, but maybe just expanding a little bit because I see a lot of strong connections there.
2: Yeah, it's this isn't new, right? Hawaii as as a paradise escape has been a part of the colonial narrative of Hawaii for since the early 1900s. You know, I won't go into real dates, right? Since the early 1900s there's been this vision, this intentional and there is there's a brilliant scholar and, and teacher of mine, Christina Bakilega, who talks about this in her book. Uh, she calls it "Legendary Hawaii," but the way that Hawaii was reconfigured and the story of Hawaii retold to to tell a particular story about escape, about paradise, about um, all that is waiting for you, so long as you have you know money. And so that's not new. Uh, that's that's a story we've known for a long time, and and it's a story that. Haunonike Trask talks about in Lovely Hula Hands, where she says, at the end, if you're, if you're thinking about visiting my homeland, don't. We don't like tourists. We don't need any more. Um, which, you know, some people are not so harsh in the way that they think about visitors, but makes an important point at the end of her article where she basically outlines all the ways that tourism helps to prop up an economy that doesn't actually support the people not just native hawaiians but the people who live here when we take that that already really complicated and violent context and then throw in another layer like a pandemic all of that gets elevated and when you pay attention to the way you know that the state has almost a billion dollars of cares act money that it didn't spend that and I don't know the the timeline and when when it needs to be spent before it disappears, but it didn't spend this money. Um, all the while saying money that they could have put in the hands of people to not go to work, right? The the narrative has been we need to open tourism because people need to go back to work and they need to be able to pay their bills and they need to be able to uh, to feed their families, which is absolutely. The second part of that is absolutely true. People need to be able to pay their bills and feed their families and keep a roof over their head and have access to adequate health care and education and all of these things. But we didn't need to open tourism to do it. We needed to open tourism to protect the interests of corporations in the same way that the road needed to be opened to protect the interests of corporations over the interests of people and our land. And that's the really critical point here in reminding people that there was another way to do this. And Hawaii is just one example that there was another way to do this. We could have paid people to stay home. I can't say that enough. We could have paid people to stay home. We could have kept our borders. We could have kept the airports shut, um, especially to tourists. Not only did we like open up the airports, we invite, not we, the state and Hawaiian Airlines and United and Southwest, they invited people here. I don't know who gave them the authority to invite Malihini strangers to our land in a time when it would threaten our lives. But all of this is a reminder that the state, these issues are not separate from the issues we fought on the Mona. The state will do everything it can to protect the interest of corporations over the interest of people uh, land. And yeah, period. That's the tweet. When when Auntie Noinoy says something like there are people who came straight from New York from a hot spot when in Hawaii We were relatively safe at that point. We did not have high numbers at that point. And the first thing they do is they go to a place that has been marked, visibly and clearly marked as a sacred place where our elders are holding that line. First of all, that's not surprising to me that people would do that, but it is deeply infuriating. And it spits in the face of every single person who is still up on that mona and every person who, who said, this is a sacred place, um sacred mauna sacred conduct as anti-pua case would say um and so it reminds us again like oh all the more connections we need to be making for people
0: i just can't (laughs) and
2: it it represents for me in a lot of ways that like so many people still don't understand the way that they are implicated and complicit in violence right though you need to recognize your kuleana your responsibilities and privileges and and the way that connects you to people and land and if you can 't do that don 't come here <laughs> please I,
1: mm-hmm. right well i yeah. i think you 're speaking to something that 's really i 've been really i 've been writing about quite a bit lately in uh, for my project um, which is that You know, violence on the land is violence on the body and that everywhere that you go is indigenous land and the way that you behave impacts indigenous people and wherever you are right now in Turtle Island or otherwise, there is an indigenous history and people still connected to the land and the way that you are behaving is impacting their ability to carry on as indigenous people. And so even if you believe the narrative that was sold to you around, uh, you know, like, around Hawaii being paradise, and therefore you're taking, you have a responsibility then to unlearn and teach yourself and to reconstruct your narrative. And that's partly why we do this work, right, is so that we can provide space for people to begin reconstructing the narrative, because we've all been told lies. Dominant culture has made us believe in white supremacy (laughs) and upholding white supremacy um, like what we saw, the Capitol. And I just kept thinking over and over and over again, and I know everybody else said this on Twitter, but I kept thinking about as those people were scaling the wall and breaking into the Capitol and not being arrested by police officers, uh, you know, what would happen and what did happen at Standing Rock? you know or here or any indigenous territory or any brown folks for that matter you know protesting how the police meet us and and how much different that looked yesterday you know the system is working as it was designed as they say i think that this is an incredibly timely conversation and I love the way that you connected that all for us.
0: For our listeners, yesterday was when the insurrection at the Capitol happened, when a group of right-wing terrorists, terrorists yeah, broke into the Capitol, um, where they were met by a little police presence, um, where they were allowed to walk out on their own accord. Um, but it was a very intense moment of thinking about the fragility of our American democracy Um, and as I was reflecting on thinking about our conversation that we were going to have today I kept thinking about that I wanted to hear your perspective as Native Hawaiians whose people have experienced an overthrow, an illegal overthrow, uh, what it felt like to be watching it unfold from the other side of the the colonizers experiencing that um, on TV (laughs) live Uh, just out of curiosity.
3: (laughs) Oh, well, I'm sure Heoli can talk about this better than I, but I just want to say my Facebook was full of our local patriots talking about how America is witnessing what our Kupunar ancestors witnessed in 1893 when they saw you know, a, a small group of anarchists um, with the aid of the United States, overthrow our queen, and what it what it, what it must have felt like then.
2: <laughs> oh man, uh, I, I'm still trying to. <laughs> I'm still trying to form ideas and words for what we, uh, what we watched on television and what I scrolled through on Twitter yesterday. One thing that really stuck out to me, and this doesn't really even a- answer your question. I'm sorry, but one thing that stuck out to me is. Um Philip DeLoria wrote a book called Playing Indian, right? And he and he talks about yeah. all the ways that um that white folks like play Indian in support of their own white supremacist work, but uh, especially they like put on the Indian Indian costume to t- to be resistant, right? And so all, all I could think about when I was watching these proud boys in the US state Capitol, like trying to mimic I don't know their vision of what an Indian Native American looks like I just I kept thinking back to that book and how like their their game plan never changes like their their work their strategy and the way that like I think we're constantly evolving and moving and shifting like at the core of it their strategy has always been the same right show up kill people, take over the land, make it productive in their sense of productivity. And then this like white colonial fragility to like scale the walls of their own capital. I don't know where to put that in my brain right now. I do know that I'm constantly having to remind, not indigenous people, but the white folks in my life, that this is not new to no, the yeah. experiment of America, <laughs> right? Like someone tweeted yesterday, "America was a bad idea." I am like, yes, <laughs> this is like America is a failed experiment. It was some like mediocre white dude's idea, and it wasn't a good idea. Um, and anyone else would have reflected on that bad idea when <laughs> receiving feedback and like <laughs> changed things up. And so I am constantly having to to unfortunately say out loud like this. This is what America looks like. Mm-hmm. This is the only thing America can do. Um, and this should inspire us to be so much more courageous than to f- simply ask for reform in a shitty idea. We need transformation. We need in Hawaii what we call like hulihia. We need to turn things upside down. I don't wanna be included in this joke. I wanna, I wanna go back to the root, right? Get radical, go to the root of things. And live in a way that is pono, that is in alignment with my people, with our relations with people, and Turtle Island, and indigenous people across the world. And so when I see these fragile white men scaling the walls of the Capitol, when, as CNN reporters will tell you, there are steps everywhere. I don't know why they're scaling the walls. Um, I think, well, thank God for the team that I'm on. <laughs> um Thank God for the people who, like, hold it down for us every day. And, and then I also, like, beyond the the humorousness of this moment, I also, honestly, there is fear in me, right? Because we're living at the brink, in my opinion, we're living at the brink of revolution. And I think anyone who, even, like, revolutionary folks who are invested in that work, anyone who tells you they're not afraid, I think is lying, I think is not paying close enough attention. And so I I feel fear, and I feel aloha for so many of our people in particular across Turtle Island who are going to experience, even with this, this new president, whatever, um, who are going to continue to experience violence in ways that luckily our people will be shielded from in a lot of ways. So like how, what does that mean for me as an aloha'ina, as a kia'i, as a protector, um, and as an ally and a comrade now moving forward, I don't actually know what that means, but I know that that's going to be the question that we have to answer.
3: I think what the mana movement just sort of laid the foundation for was uh, what we were all faced with, you know, as of March of last year when COVID came into all of our communities. And it provided uh, an opportunity for us to maybe just move the needle a little bit more. How do we now recover from from that and how do we do it using the, the feelings, the principles, the ideas that we gained and learned and shared on the Mauna about taking care of our environment, taking care of our place, taking care of our sacred sites like Mauna Kea, but taking care of each other. And sometimes that's really hard. You're talking about taking care of people who stood across the line from you or who have stood in opposition to our, our purpose on Mauna Kea, you know, who don't agree with us at all on that level, but, but they're citizens, they're our neighbors, and sometimes they're our, even our family. And so when we look at the future, how do we take all those lessons that we've learned, all of the actions, all the sacrifices that were made by so many people, and not let it go, not just waste the time we were up there, but to move toward a new future. And, and, you know, it happens for us in our islands in this microcosm, and then we look across the whole nation and see the same thing happening and happening in some extent around the world. You know, and everybody has to recalibrate and recenter. And we are saying to our government and to everyone here let's not forget that what's most important to us, the life of our aina and the life of our sacred places like Mauna Kea.
0: of you touched on this like so much of what we're seeing from the US government is an inability to imagine anything beyond the status quo like imagine and otherwise imagine other ways of taking care of one another imagine other ways of community care of sovereignty of nationhood of uh what it means to have uh, a group of indigenous people that has a different history than American Indians or whatever it is. And I know for me, I didn't spend a a ton of time at Standing Rock, but the time that I spent there was really formative in being able to build that imagining of an alternative way of doing things and that we don't have to think or wait for the settler government to save us in any way that we can take care of one another if we have the uh, the means to do so if we have the space to do so if we um have the ability to come together and i think that's a powerful part of all of this too is that now this collective like the lahui has seen other ways of imagining and jamaica you started with this too that The ideas have been woken up and it's not just that we have to wait for those in Congress uh, to give us permission to do the things that we need as indigenous people. Like there are these alternatives that now can live in real ways in people's heads because they've seen and experienced them. And that is so powerful in this moment to be able to have that to think back on, to rely on as we're watching all this chaos unfold as well. Mm I think for our people
3: to understand, uh, to really believe that we have the ability to control our destiny, and we have to stop giving that right away, you know, to government, mm-hmm. um, and and that is, and I, I think the pandemic has, if there's a, ever a silver lining to a horrible disease that has taken so many of our own people away from us, it is... Um, first of all that we immediately saw the positive impact that the lack of tourists and the lack of ourselves moving around on our aina um, even back and forth going to the beaches or public spaces open spaces the the positive impact that had on our own natural environment to to restore itself in a short period of time, where fish started returning to the oceans where they haven't been seen, uh, where fish were coming closer into the reefs where they haven't been seen, where um, limu or the algae that that we use as food sources, but are food sources for the fish and and sea, uh, sea life. Uh, started regenerating and in the forest same thing you know where, where the forest was positively impacted by the lack of human presence um, when we saw that in the first thirty days of quarantine and lockdown you know I think it it reminded all of us in our community how important it is when as uh, our economy reopens as a uh, as we move along into the next couple of years because it appears that it's going to take that long how important it is that we don't forget those lessons that we're learning right now that we're seeing some of us for the first time in our lives what it looks like when uh, you don't have ten and a half million tourists uh, walking all over our shores or driving on our roads and um, and so, you know, the question which has been there since at least the 80s when I worked in state government and at the legislature mm-hmm. is how much is enough, you know? And that is, a, that is a, a question that our state government, our county government, has never been willing to answer. It's, I don't think it's that they don't have an answer. They've just never been willing to say it out loud you know and they've never been willing to to put uh, a number or restraint on themselves all because of the posi- the possible effect on some corporation's bottom line and that cannot that cannot be anymore it just cannot be anymore it has to change we have to re- recalibrate our entire framework on how we look and how we value uh, what we do every day, how we feed ourselves. Like Heoli says, it's not about people not, um, you know, it's not about people having to have jobs. It's how, how we make sure that they have the things they need that will take care of their families while we rebuild ourselves, while we rebuild our economy and make sure that it's it's done with that. There's no better way and no better time than now in the mm-hmm. pandemic. That's the silver lining, you know. That's the, the positive that, that we've seen, um, not only Hawaiians, but everyone who's lived here. And we have to, we, I don't, well, there's such a small handful of people, mostly related to the visitor industry, who really want to say, let's get 10.5 million people back as soon as we can. Everybody else is saying, you know, we've got to do this better. How can we do this better? And how can we still invite people to come and visit but not have the impact or the uncontrolled growth that uh, we've seen up to this point?
2: something i mean i i agree with everything that auntie just said so this is a great conversation for me um (laughs) (laughs) when when talking about tourism specifically the 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 first thing i want to remind people so this book this is from a native daughter by Haunani k trask it was published in 1993 so this data is old um which means the numbers are far more inflated now but in 1993 Um, tourists outnumbered residents six to one, they outnumbered native Hawaiians 30 to one. And this is well, well, what millions before we reached 10 million tourists a year. And so the first thing I want to remind people is I, I want people to think about what that means, what kind of impact that has on the decisions. One, what does that reveal about the decisions your, um, your local government is making? And then what kind of impact that also has on those decisions, those numbers say to me, and I'm, I'm not going to say what those numbers would look like now because we all know I can't do math, but what those numbers say to me is that the state of Hawaii is not for Hawaiians and it's not for local people either. And this is an important point to make because a lot of people think when Hawaiians in particular are pushing back on the ballooning tourism industry, the exploding tourism industry, they think it's about some BS like ethnic superiority where we just don't like people who aren't Hawaiian. Really what we're saying is that the state of Hawaii has turned into a place by design that is not meant for those of us who live here. Um, And when you look at those, those numbers, the decisions that the state makes make sense, right? It, it, it makes sense. It makes sense the way that they are more invested in the health and well being of corporations than people. What Auntie Noinoy reminded us when she talked about the restoration of our ocean and our forests in just a month, I, I don't know if we can properly depict that for people over an audio recording. When she says fishes returned to areas that they hadn't been, we're talking about thousands and thousands of fishes returned into what used to be highly populated tourist attractions like Waikiki. The sharks started to come back because the fish were there. Like That's a huge, momentous occasion. When we talk about the forest being restored, that's a huge, momentous occasion. What that tells me is that You know, we're fed a lot of information about the urgency of this climate catastrophe, and it is absolutely urgent, but we are not too late. If you look at how much Hawaii healed in a month, in a month, we are certainly not too late to live in dignity with our aina and to offer ea, to offer life and sovereignty back to our aina. What it tells me is that we have to be courageous to step into decisions that are intergenerational, right? That are looking, not just what I'm gonna see in my lifetime, not just what I'm gonna see in this fiscal year, but what is the world that I am going to create for my children and my grandchildren, right? What does it mean to plan for seven generations out? Something that, you know, that language I learned from other indigenous scholars, right? What does it mean to project seven generations into the future? Leanne Simpson, asks us to ask ourselves, like, what does it mean to be recognized by our ancestors? What does it mean to live in a way that our ancestors will recognize us, will see us as kin? We have to recognize our relationship to our land for our ancestors to see us. That, I believe, more than anything else. And that is why I think Auntie Noinoi is right when she says that while we don't always agree on how, we're sh- how we should be governed or th- the things we should do to make Kauai'i the best place possible— by and large, we do agree that the land is important and that we have to protect the land, even if we also don't always agree on what that looks like. Mm-hmm. But we believe that our relationship to her is critical. So when I think about the pu'uhonua o hulu, and one of the most amazing things that was established in that place of refuge, I think about the alternative we lived and demonstrated for others. I think about how when I started teaching at the University of Hawaii as a graduate student in 20. 20- 14, when I said things like capitalism isn't natural and we don't have to live like this, I think about how I had to prove that to my students. I think about how in 2020, I say that and my students are like, yeah, we're there, like, what's next? And I'm like, oh, I better go do my homework. <laughs> I think about how the state of Hawaii, it, it'd be really hard, I think, to find someone who disagrees with this statement, but send them my way. I think about how the state of Hawaii cannot house, cannot feed, cannot provide adequate health care or education to our people in its however many years of existence. In fact, that it's gotten worse and worse at that in the last two generations. And then I think about how in the o in about a week, we were able to house and feed and educate and provide adequate health care. And when I say healthcare, I mean physical well-being, spiritual well-being, emotional well-being, uh, psychological well-being. In a week, for thousands of people in a small area with the most extreme weather conditions anywhere in our Pai, in our islands. If that doesn't tell people that we are the alternative, then I, I don't really know what to do, because it's so obvious to me. It also, I think it's important for us to frame a part of the movement in that way, because I think that's what makes us so dangerous, I, f- I believe that's what inspired the state of Hawaii to spend what 12, 13, 14 million dollars trying to intimidate and remove us. So so what's next, right? When you when you show up at Standing Rock and you see an alternative, and you or you show up at uh, Mauna Kea and you see an alternative, or you show up in Minneapolis and you see an alternative to to the police force and community security, right? This creation of community security. Mm-hmm. What's next? Well then we have to make the connections between our experience and our politics, right? Auntie Noy Noi Wong Wilson said something that I believe is absolutely true. She says that the the state's not willing to reckon with this question of when is enough enough. This like ten million tourists number. And she's right, the, the state knows the state knows when there's too much for the land. The state knows when there's too much for the people. But capitalism can't make space for a question like this is enough they do not align, which is why capitalism can never be pono, it can never be balanced and in alignment with our values as Hawaiians, which is why, I'll repeat the words of Ili Malong, one of my favorite people in the world, capitalism is antithetical to Aloha This, to me, is a really obvious and important statement, but it's also not something that everyone in the Lahu'i is ready to say. In the same way that not everyone in the Lahui is ready to say, homophobia is antithetical to Aloha Anti Blackness is antithetical to Aloha Aina. So when we create a movement that is rooted in Kapu Aloha and Aloha Aina, this fierce and intense love for land and recognition of our connection and relationship to her then we need to be ready to take on everything that Aloha Aina entails. And we need to be able to elevate, like Kapu Aloha asks us, to elevate to our highest self, our best selves. And that means, again, being courageous and turning away from the comforts and the security, I'm using air quotes, guys, uh, the security of prisons, of police, of military, of capitalism, of all these things that the United States and white supremacy have told us over and over, we need to survive. No, these things are killing us. We need an alternative to survive. Um, and that's what, one of the many things I learned on the Mona.
0: I feel so privileged to hear and learn from you. And I think what I'm hearing, Haley, is basically like the movement to protect Mauna Kea is a movement of abolition.
2: I, I really believe that. I should also say that I don't think everyone who's been involved in the movement believes that yet. And to me, that's the work. But I do believe, like, yes, it is an abolitionist movement. Joy Inomoto once said, and I wasn't there when she said it, I'm quoting someone else quoting her, once said that abolition means we build pu'uhonuo within each other. To my own people, I want us to think about what it means to build places of refuge within each other, to create sustainable security and health and well-being in our communities and for me in this moment that means taking a more active stance in prison abolitionist work in our own community I, I think we need to be way more intentional about the way that we understand how our kupuna could be removed from our own land by police because they were a nuisance to the state is not actually all that different from our family members who have been exiled into prisons because they are a nuisance to the state and because we haven't done the work to establish real genuine security and care i think we need to make that that link uh, more than ever especially because there are 400 active cases of covid in occ which is our largest prison and the and the mayor of of oahu has fought to have those cases not counted in our state count so, like, there is there is this active dissonance um, and real clear articulation of who matters and who doesn't matter in the state of Hawaii, and we cannot allow the state to, to make those kinds of decisions because we know time and time again that they will not make them appropriately. And so, as we move forward in the protection of our aina, um, what's next for me is hopefully bringing, educating myself more and bringing people along into understanding, yes, like, like you said, this is an abolitionist movement. It needs to be an abolitionist movement in order to have air, in order to have sovereignty. I believe we need abolition. How can we continue to organize on on all of these fronts because they are the same front line? I think that's going to be the fight of my lifetime, of my generation. And I feel really blessed that we've had the guidance of our kupuna, like noi, like Auntie Honanike Trask, like. like the 38 kupuna who were arrested like my father and the kupuna who came before them that we really are so privileged to step into this moment with so much protection lined around us so much aloha helping us to take the next steps forward
1: The first time I went to Hawaii, I was I was a young person, you know, I was a kid. And I did like everybody does when they go to Hawaii, you know, you like put on the sunscreen, you go lay on the beach, you participate in all of the ugly tourist activities, the stereotypical, you know, nonsense. It wasn't until I was older, I'd learned more. And I started really connecting with Kanakas that I started to change my perspective and realize uh, how I was poorly participating. It's been through the work with the project and learning how to engage with folks in a way that is, feels like I'm giving back and not just taking, you know, uh, which, which, who's to say if I did that, if, or if I have done that, but the idea for me has always been, um, can I go to a new place and pay respect and homage to the indigenous people that live there and not disrupt their way of life? And am I in my own practice right now? in the way that I live my life from day to day, am I contributing to the goodness or am I taking away from it? And so I I really think with what's going on here with TMT and what the stories that I've learned throughout this process, it's just sort of like really reinforced that I have a responsibility to be an ally and an advocate for indigenous people wherever I go. Certainly to my Kanaka relatives who are in this massive fight, To protect their sacred sites.
0: Thinking back to our visit to Mauna Kea and being there and in that space during a time when, like, it was January, the weather was cold and it was rainy, and to see the folks up there and the dedication to that place and to experience the the protocol that happened three times a day and to like see the kitchen tent and the Kapuna tent and like the infrastructure that was there. And we mentioned it like several times throughout the process, but I kept drawing the parallels to Standing Rock and our time um the the time that I spent out there in Cannonball at Ocheti Shikoi camp and the ways that these two movements, while fundamentally different spaces, different causes, um, shared so much about lessons of how to take care of one another. And that's what I keep thinking about is that, um, Jamaica talks about in this episode about how within days of the establishment of um, the camp at Puhulu Hulu, there was healthcare, there was free healthcare, there was a school, there was, uh, everyone was fed, there were places for people to sleep, like everyone was taken care of. And that's very similar to what happened at Standing Rock. And that it just gives these spaces of being able to imagine otherwise and that's like my biggest thing that I am obsessed with right now is we've gone through this year of like absolute hell of thinking about the ways that things can be otherwise and different and that's the biggest lesson that I think I get from Mauna Kea um, is that we have the knowledge and the skills and the ancestral strength to do things differently. And when given the opportunity, we can. And it doesn't mean that they're like not without like messy complication and things that are really awful and shitty and hard and like the the ills of the, the world do not um, stay away from these places. But the fact that in my mind, I now have two examples of how we as Indigenous people can build resistance spaces in a way that is fundamentally about relationships and about taking care of one another and how different that is from my day-to-day life. And that's just what I keep thinking about. The generosity of folks to share with us, I think, will really stick with me too and goes along with the power of those relationships and the power of that place. So I'm just really grateful that this was something that we got to spend this year doing and thinking about because Lord knows I needed it. <laughs> and even having this conversation with Jamaica and Auntie Noe Noe reminded me settler politics is only a small piece of our world. We have the ability to do things differently.
1: I couldn't I couldn't help thinking about, I, I, after Jamaica said that when she was talking about, you know, like, the American government has been here for this such a such long time. What did she say? She said, the American government since its time here in Hawaii occupying this place has not been able to figure out how to provide health care or how to take care of its Hawaiian people. And us in a matter of days, were able to do it up on the camp, right? That's what the what you're referring to. And I was thinking about reservations and when she said that, I was like, yeah, I mean, I see that at Standing Rock that we were able to take care of people. I see that on the mountain, you're able to take care of people. But why aren't we able to take care of people on the res in the way that we need? You know, like, what's the difference between a res camp or, or, or a, not a res camp, but this it is a res camp. <laughs> what is the difference between a resistance camp and the res? And I've been thinking about that over and over and over again, you know, because isn't the reservation in a lot of ways a space that was meant to be our own, to be like uh, not interrupted by Western systems? But then I realized and I was thinking about it more like, no, the reservation was de- designed by the white man, the reservation was designed by colonialism. Therefore, the reservation will, is not going to provide. Because it wasn't designed by us. And that's the difference between the res and the encampment. And um, I remember when I spent all that time at Standing Rock, you know, and when I came home and I'd been outside for a long time, you know, like sleeping in teepees or tents and <laughs> and my first night home, I was really warm by this fire, and I felt so lonely. Like I missed the sound of the prairie. I missed the sound of people singing in the distance. I missed the feeling that I had when I felt like I was surrounded by like-minded people. It almost brings me to tears remembering that loneliness, you know, thinking like there is the otherwise, whatever otherwise it is that we're going to imagine as we keep talking about here, that that otherwise feels more wholesome. We feel like we're a part of something on a daily basis and we're not constantly scrounging to have enough time to feel whole, you know, and that's what I miss about Standing Rock and and, uh, and about Mauna Kea. And that was the, the feeling that it gave me, which is like, I could stay here forever because here in this tent that doesn't have, um, west elm furniture <laughs> <laughs> or the perfect paint color um, here i feel the most comfortable you know and and how how crazy that is that that i spend so much time like thinking about my drapes when i'm stuck in my house feeling completely unwhole but when i'm in those spaces it doesn't matter what it looks like it it ma- what the feeling of feeling like you're a part of something and and surrounded by people who care about you and you care about them is like, ai don't know, it's just a better feeling.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's why this story of Mauna Kea was something that we felt like it was just really important to tell because it brings together so many of the things that we talk about on this podcast. Um, all of these relationships that are so fundamental to the story of Mauna Kea, all of the pieces of settler colonialism and Western science and all of these themes that we've brought up again and again um, really come together through this story. And so i'm really grateful um for everyone joining us on this journey through these three episodes um i really hope that people take time to continue to learn more and to support because there's so much more than what we were able to include mm-hmm. in these three episodes so yeah i'm just left with such a sense of of gratitude for this story mm-hmm same yeah and uh
1: As a part of our reporting on this story, which, you know, we also took time to talk with students from the University of Hawaii um, who spent their semester on the Mauna, as well as one of their faculty, Tai Tengen, and their powerful stories will be available as a bonus episode on the Patreon. And so we really encourage you to listen to that because we're super grateful for the time that they spent with us. And... Uh, You know, I've been incredibly humbled by this process. I think I'm just consistently humbled every time that I get the opportunity to speak with our people because Indigenous knowledge is so powerful. Indigenous personhood gives me this sense of, like, that I have a place where I belong. And so for me... Getting to tell these stories also plants my feet back down where they belong like puts my hands back in the dirt reminding me that I belong amongst these people you know and that these ideas and these goals and these dreams that we have can come to fruition when the people come together you know hearing the power of what happened when all these folks came together to protect their mauna and the lengths that they're willing to go to and the respect they have for their kapuna, just made me so um, inspired, really. Inspired that our Indigenous values and Indigenous knowledge systems will continue to be passed on. And so I just want to say that much and say thank you to all those that participated and made this possible.
0: As you can imagine, we have a whole slew of thank yous for this series. So, Wado, thank you to Dr. Antinoi Noi Wong Wilson, Jamaica Osario, Lanakila Manguel, Kianu Sai, Tai Tengen, La Howard, Alexandra Makamai Koupu, Kuila Tengan, and Kavika, and all of the other Kiai who generously gave us their time and words. We're so grateful for you taking the time to talk with us. And the other Kia'i who generously gave us their time and words. We're so grateful. Advisement for the series came from Josh Mori and Kylie Sullivan. The amazing artwork for the three episodes, as always, came from Sierra Sana. And thank you to our AMR team Teo Shantz, Will Paisley, Kristen Bolin, Lindsey Hightower, John Alonzo, Keani Rodriguez. And music for the episode came from Law Howard and Masa Kobayashi. And footage from Mauna Kea that you've been seeing on our Instagram comes from Kanae Okana. Wado, mahalo, thank you to everyone. And one last thing, folks. If you get a
1: chance, could you head
0: on over to the iTunes, leave a comment,
1: click the like button, and share this with your friends? <laughs> you know, organic growth is all related to our listeners' supporting through sharing, liking and commenting. And so we appreciate that.
2: If you if you can't. Thanks. <laughs> All my relations.